Romans 3, 10 through 12, as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Could it be any more clear? There is none. Jews, Gentiles, which covers every ethnic group in the world. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And of course, this flies in the face not only of an understanding of of human nature that is good, but it also flies in the face of those who believe that human nature is good enough to turn to God. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of his sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. And so we've sometimes heard justification just as if I had never sinned. And there's some truth to that, but there's much more that's involved with justification. So let's flesh it out. Let's do the best that we can to step through these things. First, Right, or A, I guess on your outline, we had justification defined. A, justification is a gift of God's grace. First and foremost, God's free grace is granted so that we might be justified. God is in no way obligated to provide justification to the sinner, nor to allow a wretched sinner to benefit from the justification provided in Christ. Yet it was for this purpose that he sent Christ, to show the riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Turn to Romans chapter 3. And in the book of Romans, particularly in the first five chapters, we have the fullness of a, a, a definition of justification. And you really need all of that, right? So many years ago, I went through it. Paul went through it most recently. We need to constantly go back through so that we have a good understanding of justification. But I can't preach through the first five chapters. So I'll just do the best I can. Romans chapter 3, verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. What a a beautiful picture of justification. As a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. You have all the access of justification in that verse alone. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. And if you want to put some little sub points under here, I didn't want to try to get all those in the outline. Uh, You can because you've got lots of room, I'm sure. All right. To break this idea down that it is a gift of God's grace. Here's why. Because men are undeserving of it. Men could never may never, can never deserve for themselves to be declared righteous. Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead 
in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Since we couldn't deserve it, the only way we can receive it is by grace. We cannot be justified if God does not give us grace because we could never earn justification. Secondly, really, this is still this little sub points underneath, justified as a gift by his grace, men are unwilling and unable to seek God for justification. That's why they must receive it as a gift of grace. They cannot come to it. Not only could they never deserve it, but they do not even come. They are unable to actually come to God and even seek it. And so they must receive it from God himself. Romans 3, 10 through 12, as it is written, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Could it be any more clear? There is none. Jews, Gentiles, which covers every ethnic group in the world. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And of course, this flies in the face not only of an understanding of of human nature that is good, but it also flies in the face of those who believe that human nature is good enough to turn to God. That's the one act some whole realms of religion in evangelicalism hold. Man is good enough to turn to God. He's not any better than that, but that's all he is. And that was the whole discussion last week, wasn't it? Reach with what you got. You're just good enough. God understands that. And so if you'll just reach with what you have, he will count that as righteousness. We're going to discuss that more in just a moment. But the scriptures are clear. Justification is a gift of grace because you cannot deserve it. You cannot earn it. And you don't want to. You are completely unable to seek it. And then thirdly, the reason that justification must be a gift of God's grace is that God desires to receive all the glory for salvation. He will allow man none. He will not allow an ounce of human glory in salvation. There's multiple verses here, but the one you're most familiar with is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. What does it start off with? For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Speaking of the whole act of salvation, including faith, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. God will not allow it. And then Ephesians 1, 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Men may not be, will not be, must not be praised for anything that has to do with salvation. Faith works anything. God desires to receive all the glory. Next, B, we are justified on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ. So A was justified as a gift of God's grace. Next, justified on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ, Romans 5, 9. Much more than, and we already saw this in Romans 3, 24 and 25, or or 23 and 24. I'm just adding to the biblical evidence for this. Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The blood of Christ equals the work of Christ on the cross and taking the wrath of God by suffering and dying in our place, being buried and rising again on the third day. That's what being cleansed by his blood means. There's not some special efficacious nature of his human blood that poured on the ground that cleanses us. It is the work of sacrifice. That cleanses us. And this is seen all throughout the New Testament. 
That's how the blood of Christ is described. That's the only way his blood could cleanse us from sin. There has to have been a payment made, and the blood is the indication of the payment made. That is, then, our sins imputed to Christ. So how is this possible? How can we be declared righteous on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ? Well, in his sacrifice, there were several things that happened. Our sins were imputed to him. Now, let's define imputation. It's a legal term in which the actions or assets of a person are legally designated to belong to another person on the basis of a declaration of law. Someone comes in to say, that person doesn't have the money to pay, I will pay. If there are laws that are in existence as such that that is legal, then the judge says, I will take, accept the payment that you are to give for this person as a legal payment. And therefore, he is absolved from the, from the penalty of the crime, imputation. And this is seen most clearly in 2 Corinthians 5.21. That is, our sins imputed to, declared to be Christ's, even though he was never sinful. He didn't sin, he didn't, he didn't commit our sins, yet he was viewed legally by God as having uh, the penalty or needing to receive the penalty for them, which he paid. Second Corinthians five twenty one. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He declared it. I will declare, I will take the sins of the people and I will say legally that Christ is responsible for those. He's going to make the payment. Even though his character was never changed, he was never sullied by sin in any way. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the second part of imputation, which I'll talk about in a minute. The first part, our sins imputed to Christ. And that's why when he takes them, it provides a cleansing effect for us. The penalty for our sins is removed. This also speaks then of the substitutionary and redeeming nature of Christ's sacrifice. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us, that is, made the payment. There's another term that we use. He redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He took our curse. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, the just for the unjust. We call it the great exchange, substitutionary atonement. He paid for our sins, though he had no sin. And God legally declared that this was right, that he would and could do this, and he did. So that's the first part of justification on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ. Our sins are imputed to him. So he dies for our sins. He dies in our place. But then also the second part is that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. See, if we were cleansed from sin or simply had the penalty of our sin removed, we stand before God, what, neutral? Having no longer the penalty of sin, but not having anything positive or any positive righteousness by which to enter into his presence, by which to have a true relationship with him. For it is required that a man be truly righteous or that he have that status granted to him, a true righteous status, which does not happen from simply having the sin removed or paid for. So the second part is that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. The positive righteousness, this positive righteousness that is not ours but Christ's, allows us to reign in life with Christ because condemnation has been removed and positive favor on the basis of Christ's sacrifice has been restored. That was the second part of 2 Corinthians 5.21. 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, imputation of our sin to him, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, the imputation of, the declaration of Christ's righteousness being granted to us. Not our actually becoming righteous, as we will see. It didn't change our character. Just as our sins did not change the character of Christ, but God accepted them or placed them upon Christ in his legal reckoning. So it is that we don't become righteous as Christ. We simply receive the benefit of his payment, God imputing, granting to us that payment, choosing on behalf of his declaration to accept that payment for us and that righteousness in our stead. Romans 5.17. For by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace, and that's speaking of Adam's death, which was, and his sin, which was imputed to us at the very beginning. All the members of the human race, therefore, received the penalty of Adam's sin. But much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness, that is, the righteousness of Christ granted to us, or or imputed to us, they will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, again, Adam's sin, even so through one act of righteousness, Christ's atoning substitutionary death for for us on the cross, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Paul says this in like four different ways in Romans 5, 17 through 19. Verse 19, for as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Again, not becoming, having perfect righteousness in their character, but being granted the status of perfect righteousness on the basis of Christ's work and his righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.20, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. A couple of illustrations that might help here. Let's say that uh, my bank account is out of money and I have nothing in it. That would maybe not be far from true at this point. But nonetheless, let's say that I had nothing and I needed to get money from somewhere. And someone came along and said, you know, I figured out a way to allow your bank account, to it's your account, but anytime you swipe your ATM card, that the electrons will be rerouted through the computer so that the money is drawn from Bill Gates' bank account. I mean, that's a good deal. In fact, let's do that right away. Now, I want to speak of the nature of salvation here, or as far as how we enter into salvation, just simply the nature of what imputation might look like. I swipe the card, what happens? It doesn't come out of my account, there's nothing there. It comes out of Bill Gates's. But is it my money? No, it's his. And every time it gets taken out, a little bit more of his money, as it were, is taken, but not mine, because I don't have any. That might be one way to view imputation. How about another one for the, for the techies of you out there? How about a website domain name? For some of you going to be, what are you talking about? But nonetheless, right, what can happen is, all I need is, is a domain name that I type in, that URL that you type in. Right? And let's say that I type in, I call it Chris's website. And yet when you type in the domain name, what happens is he sees Christ's website instead. He just reroutes it. My website, full of sin, full of debauchery, everything wrong, a bad Facebook page, for lack of better terms. And I can't get rid of it. There's nothing I can do to change it. But you type it in, and what happens is you get Christ's. So have I actually changed it? My website's still the same. What you're looking at, as it were, is the website of Christ. Maybe that helps. Maybe you're more confused than you were before. But I, I, I think the idea of imputation is this, that that's, it's not that hard. Legally speaking, God says, I'll accept the payment. That's really what it is. I'll, I choose to accept that payment and view you as having actually paid. I didn't. I couldn't. Christ did. And so I'm viewed with all the benefits of that payment 
the righteousness of Christ imputed to me. Now we are justified then C here due to God's legal declaration. Again, and I've already mentioned this, but I'll say it because it's very important. This is not infused righteousness. He doesn't take the righteousness of Christ, give us a little bit of it, and then say, ah, you've done good things, so I will justify you on the basis of that. That was last week, remember? The discussion of all of that? No, he, he does not do that, for we may, there may be nothing in us that God looks at to say is righteous. All of this is the work of Christ, because God will glorify himself through Christ. So instead, he imputes it, he declares that this is true, a legal transaction. Now remember, God is a God who obeys the law. He established the law, but then he obeys it. Well, his laws say that he may impute the righteousness of one to another, and he may impute the sins of one to another. We already saw that in Adam. Adam's sin imputed to us. And it's a good thing that imputation works, and that it's part of the lawful working of a holy God. Otherwise, we could never receive the righteousness of Christ. We would only get Adam. We would not get Christ. So we are justified due to God's legal declaration, Romans 3.26. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. God is the one who declares this. He is a righteous and holy God. And by the working of his own law, his own rules that he has established, imputation is acceptable when the proper payment is given. And that is why he sent his own son, because he was the only one who could make the proper payment. The only one who could perform the work necessary so that our sin could be taken and his righteousness could be given. Only fully God and fully man, the Lord Jesus Christ, could accomplish this. Charles Hodge says this, kind of a a bit of a long quote, but I think will, will help us with this. He says, these are the first principles, what I've just mentioned, of the teaching of the reformers. The fourth grand error of the papist is the article of just, uh, in the article of justification, says an old divine, is concerning what we call the form thereof. For they, denying and deriding the imputation of Christ's righteousness, do hold that men are justified by infusion and not by the imputation of righteousness. We, on the contrary, do hold, according to the scriptures, that we are justified before God only by the imputation of Christ's righteousness and not by infusion. That is giving us a righteousness. We work out that then God declares, oh, you're righteous on the basis of that. When we say that God imputes Christ's righteousness to us, we mean nothing else but this, that he graciously accepts us and on our behalf the righteousness of Christ, that is both as to his obedience in the days of his flesh and his sufferings which he sustained for us on the cross, as if we had in our own persons both performed and suffered the same ourselves. Because of the legal payment that God has made, God can say that the unholy may be treated as holy even though they remain sinners. Now be, now be careful here. He doesn't declare us as actually holy. He doesn't pretend that we are. He doesn't go, well, I know you're not really holy, but I'll just kind of be blinded and not see that. No, he sees us through the righteousness of Christ, through the declaration that he himself has made. Again, Hodge, there's a sense, however, in which the principles in question are perfectly sound. God must see things as they are and pronounce them to be what they are. The Protestant doctrine does not suppose that God regards any person or thing as being other than he really is. When he pronounces the unjust to be just, the word is taken in different senses. He does not pronounce the unholy to be holy, but declares that the demands of justice have been satisfied on the behalf of those who have no righteousness on their own. And that's what he did for you on the cross. That's as far as we're going to get this morning. That in the righteousness, that in the sacrifice of Christ, his perfect righteousness, the righteousness of God himself, was granted to you on the basis of God's gracious determination alone. Now we will see that that flows out in faith. That will be our whole session 
next week. How does faith fit into this? Where does faith come in? But for now, your understanding is this, that as you come and partake of communion, that you are what that you have the privilege of remembering that what God graciously did for you was to take your sins and put them upon the sinless Son of God, the payment for them, and to take His perfect righteousness and put it upon you who deserve nothing of it. Now these things, my prayer is, were, were somewhat basic to you. But the question I would have as you come to, to communion is, do you appreciate them properly? Do you recognize the graciousness of God to provide this for you when you didn't deserve it at all? And do you understand truly and fully what it means that you have been declared righteous, that you could never be righteous, and that all of this is a gracious act of God, that there's nothing that you did that deserved it, that there's nothing that you could do to pursue it, and there's nothing you could do or that God will allow to take away from his glory. That's what you celebrate here. We don't come to communion celebrating the glory of man in choosing God or in, or in becoming saved or in any of those things. We come here celebrating the graciousness of a God who would come and provide those things to the undeserving, unwilling, and those who have no glory whatsoever. So if the men would come for communion, we will now enter into that time. I don't think much more needs to be said as we ponder those things. I do just want everyone to turn to John 14 and just some added encouragement uh, as we partake here of the Lord's Supper. I want you to imagine uh, if you were in the Lord's inner circle there and uh, you had just been told that you would uh, basically forsake Him, that you would deny Him, that one would eventually betray uh, Him, and that he would soon die, and uh, you're hearing all these things. But then you hear these words from Christ in John 14, 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The confidence here is Jesus is talking. that He's just told the disciples all these things that they were going to do and that were going to happen to him. And their uncertainty in their minds of what's going to happen. And yet Christ says, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let it be agitated. Don't let it be stirred up with depression with uh, uncertainty. Why? Because many points to himself, because I am doing these things. You believe in God, then believe in me. And I think as we come to this table, it's a reminder that our confidence, that's the blessing of the Lord's table. Right before this, he has instituted the Lord's Supper. And uh, he, the whole point of this is that our confidence is drawn to Christ as we view these elements. They're there for a reason, by the way. There's nothing special in them in the sense that uh, of their of of their uh, what they are, but what they point to is, and they're there for a reason. And as we take them and we we see the the bread that represents the body of Christ and the blood that re, or the cup that represents His blood, your confidence should be reminded that it should be in Christ. 
and that we come here to the table, if you come uh, agitated this morning or you come discouraged or as you look at your life and you go, man, I just I continually fail. That's why we come this morning, because we should have confidence in Christ, in Christ alone. And, and especially in these words, I will come again uh, and receive you to myself. And that's a blessing uh, that as Christ is telling them, they're going to do these things already. In the future, they're going to deny Christ. And yet he says, I'm coming back for you. And there's great hope and confidence in that, that as we look at our lives and we, I know for me, as I look at my own and I come to this table, I'm reminded that how often I fail and how often I am uh, not uh, what I should be. But that's why I draw great encouragement and strength from this table. And uh, we have been justified by faith in Christ. His righteousness is why we will stand before the Lord. But there's that ongoing work that Christ does because in in that few more chapters, he's going to be praying to his Father, and he's going to be praying for us, those who would believe on him through the Apostles' word. And so we have Christ praying for us even now. Uh, He is our high priest who intercedes on our behalf. And so we really should not be coming this morning unsettled, uncertain at all, because our confidence is not in ourselves, it's in Christ. And so if you are coming with sin in your life today, uh, and you've not repented of that sin, do so now. And take this time to examine yourself and then rejoice that Christ has paid for that in full and that he will make sure, he will complete that work uh, that, he has, that, uh, the, the, that he has begun in you. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the SOLA and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online And we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.